Today's sermon text will be from Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Hear the word of God. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray together. Father, as um, just as your uh, son willingly and lovingly and even as an act of worship rendered to you, placed himself under that lawyer's question. We want now by your mercies to present ourselves to you as living sacrifices underneath that question and we want to take shelter by faith in Jesus' answer not just with his words but with his whole life and we want Father to ask for the Holy Spirit to come and to show us to reveal to us all the places and the ways and the thought structures and the unbelieving habits of our hearts that are Uh, trusting in, and it can be in our hopes or in our despair, trusting in our own obedience to you as the only shelter that is available to us. And lead us, we pray, to turn from that Christ-dishonoring foolishness and instead to rest in him alone today. Father, I pray And I know that so many others join with me in asking you to particularly uh, move with your gracious power into the lives of those who are not yet Christians, who who they may think that they're believers, but they may be dealing with a mirage of what Christianity actually is. And I pray that you will come in today and and graciously uh, set before them the truth about your son and graciously enliven them to be able to see and grieve with true hatred the reality of their sin and to see and rejoice with great joy and thanksgiving the full answer uh, for their sin in the sufficiency of Jesus. So come and save and sanctify today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we know uh, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Savior, but when is he Savior? When is he Savior? That may sound like a silly question to you, but it's actually very important. Because the way you answer the when question, when is he Savior, is necessarily going to influence how you think about why Jesus is our Savior and how he is our Savior. When is Jesus Savior? Think about a couple of very familiar examples from the Bible. Remember when, uh, when Joseph finds out in Matthew chapter 1 that Mary is pregnant. And being an honorable man, the, the text says, he's considering how to divorce her and put her away quietly, not bring shame upon her. And you remember that night... He has a dream, and an angel of the Lord appears to him in the dream. And do you remember what the angel said? The angel says, fear not, Joseph. Uh, The child that she carries is from the Holy Spirit. And you shall call his name Jesus. The child who's in Mary's womb, you shall call his name Jesus. So before Jesus is born, the angel is announcing the child's name to Joseph. And is saying, you shall call him Jesus for... This is Matthew 121, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, what's what's happening is the angel is 
giving to Joseph the full heavens interpretation, the heavenly meaning of Jesus's life. It's gonna be Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. Before he's ever born, while he's still in the womb. And then do you remember in Luke chapter two, we think about this all the time at Christmas, when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds. And you remember he says, don't worry, I bring you a good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is in Luke chapter two. For unto you, now listen to this language, for unto you is born in, uh, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Not one who will be a savior, but one who in some sense already is. Both appearances of those angels when Jesus is simply in the womb and on the day of his birth are pointing to something that we need to think about uh, very deeply, which is precious. And that is the saving significance, not just of Jesus's death, but of his life. We are very accustomed to thinking about the gospel almost exclusively and very narrowly as the story of the power, the saving power of Jesus' death. But my friends, that death has no saving power apart from the saving power of his life. So Jesus was obedient to the point, think about that. Jesus was obedient, Philippians 2, to the point of death. Not just at death, but all the way, once he was found in human form, all the way to the point of death. So the cross is the culmination of a lifetime of obedience to God that Jesus rendered as a man for men. See, this is such good news for us because we all have a double liability to God. You see, when, when Paul tells us in Romans 3 that there is no distinction among people, doesn't matter whether you're Jew, doesn't matter whether you're Gentile, there is no distinction among people. This is the great leveling announcement of Romans chapter 3. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is not simply that we have broken God's commandments, and we have. We've broken them. Every one of us has broken God's commandments. But there's another side to that. There's another sense in which we have fallen short of the glory of God. And that is that not only have we broken God's commandments, we have failed to fulfill them. And both are obligations of men. You see, if you only think about Jesus as a penalty payer, you slander him. He's more than a penalty payer. He's the reward earner. You see, we all have two needs before God. Every human being has two needs. We need someone, because of this double liability, we've broken God's commandments, we've fallen short of the, the glory of God by breaking his commandments, actually transgressing and violating them. But we have also fallen short of the glory of God because we have not lived in a way that has fulfilled God's designs and his intentions for human beings. And those two needs... Uh, those two liabilities that are so intertwined, they, they result in two massive needs that we each have. We need a savior who is going to answer for our punishment, which is what happens at the cross. Jesus gives himself for our sins, lays, serves us, and gives his life as the ransom for many. But, you know, a ransom has to be valuable in order to secure somebody's release. What is it that makes the death of Jesus so valuable? How could it be a treasure of such eternal worth that when it is handed over to God, God justly and in a way that is completely consistent with his righteousness is able to justify eternally the unrighteous? What could possibly make that sacrifice? That ransom, so valuable. It's the perfection of Jesus' life.
It is this other need that we have that Jesus answers as our Savior. Not just that he would answer for the punishment that we deserve, which is it's staggering. But that he would provide in his life from conception forward the fulfillment of God's law and design for what it means to be a human being with such perfection and completeness that his righteousness, his perfect righteousness in the evaluation of God would make his death eternally saving. Now all this is background to Jesus' exchange with the lawyer. Because the lawyer asks him a question about the greatest commandment of God to men. And Jesus answers in terms of Deuteronomy 6.5, the greatest commandment. This is not a hard question for Jesus, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Jesus adds what is a deduction and an implication of that command. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what I want to do this morning with you is, is reflect on the significance of this greatest commandment. But more particularly, Jesus' fulfillment of it. And you'll, you'll remember again, we're at the end of Matthew 22, and so we are in the last week of Jesus' life just a few days before the cross. And so all these exchanges are giving, being given to us, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to be vista points from which we gain a perspective on the magnitude of what Jesus is about to do at the cross. And this exchange between Jesus and the lawyer about the greatest commandment gives us the opportunity to reflect on the way in, in which Jesus' not only his death but his life carries saving power in fulfilling God's commandments for us. So I want to do that with you under three perspectives, or from three perspectives. The cherished worth of God, that will be from God's perspective. The vanished glory of men, which will be about thinking about the greatest commandment from man's perspective. Then the finished work of Jesus, thinking about Jesus' finished work and the greatest commandment. So, so let's, let's first consider the greatest commandment from God's perspective, the, the cherished worth of God. Friends, we need to, the first thing we need to understand is we need to think about the greatest commandment from God's perspective because the greatest commandment that God gives to man is the greatest fulfillment of what it means to be God. In the greatest commandment, what God is calling us to do is to follow him, to follow him in his own footsteps because he loves the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, and all his strength. God loves God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. God intends us to follow him in his own footsteps. What God is showing us in the greatest commandment and what Jesus is celebrating is that in giving us the greatest commandment, God is making plain that what he wants to be true in our lives is he wants our hearts as his image bearers to echo with the very same music that fills his own heart, which is his delight in who he is. If God did not love God, God would not be God, right? That's what Jonathan Edwards says in effect, and John Piper says after it. If God did not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, he would not be God. Because to be God means to love supremely that which is supreme. So the greatest commandment that God gives to men is an echo of what is already true about God's own character with reference to himself. You know, this, this uh, week I was listening, actually yesterday I was listening to this podcast, my favorite podcast in our time by Melvin Bragg. It's a BBC podcast. 
And it's the greatest podcast because it is completely a surprise what they're going to talk about every week. It changes week to week. And this last week, I was so excited. It was about the sun, S-U-N. I was just like, oh, cannot wait to listen to that. And I was listening to it yesterday. They had three solar physicists on this podcast. And I just, I thought, solar physicists? I didn't even know that existed. I thought, why didn't I do better in math? They were talking about the sun, and one of the, one of the scientists was saying that they have figured out recently, you know, the sun is just like this huge fireball, and there's this, all this reaction going on, hydrogen at its core. Hydrogen is being converted under all this pressure and ridiculously high temperatures, like 15 million degrees you know, uh, Celsius. You know, it's being converted into helium, and energy is being released. And one of the scientists was talking about how all that energy and all that reaction, it creates sound waves. Now, I'd never heard that before. Sound waves that then uh, propagate through the sun's mass. And the radius of the sun is something like, you know, 130,000 miles. And these sound waves of the, from the core of the sun propagate through the sun, and they can hear... And it resonates, and there are echoes within the sun of all this awesome reaction and power at the core of it. And and one of the scientists said, it's just like a musical instrument. And I said, yes! Because that very morning I had read with many of you Psalm 148.3, where the psalmist says, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. That's a very weird thing to say to a star and to a moon. Praise him. And yet when I heard this podcast, I thought, that's exactly right. Because in the core of God's being, there is a delight in being God. And that presses itself out, not only within the Trinity, but in creation. And God's design in the greatest commandment is that our hearts, our lives would be yielded to resonate with that same music of God's goodness and excellence and beauty. That, that is at, that's not peripheral to what it means to be humans, but central. Now, I know we're not used to thinking that way, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's not true. That is how the Bible speaks of God. God is very happy to be God. He is not bored being God. He is fascinated by being God. And in God's case, it's a righteous self-fascination. So God God is not calling us to be pioneers, friends, to break new ground when he says to us, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Love me with all of your faculties and all of your capacities. Love me with all of your strength, all your abilities, all your imagination, the depth of your being. God is not calling us to be pioneers. He's calling us to follow him in the trail that he has pioneered and has been blazing for all eternity. In one unbroken, if you stop to think about what it must be like to be God. From eternity past, in one unbroken and uninterrupted act of holy rapture, God has loved God. And he will love God into eternity future. The greatest commandment is not the measure of God's neediness, but of his blessedness. God does not need to be loved by us to be God, but we need to love him to be fully and truly human. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. And you know why it sounds ridiculous? Because we have spent our lifetimes in a world and participating in a world that has wanted to banish the truth about God from the realm. So when Jesus comes back, when God incarnate is standing on the earth and he answers and places his life under this commandment, we are being reminded of what it means to be really human here at last 
is a true human being, here at last is a human being, not scarred or misshapen or distorted by sin. Here at last, here at last is the one who shows us what it really means to be a human being. Not impeded by sin, not obstructed. His thought structures do not, do not bend and veer away from the glory of God. His thought structures are bent on the glory of God. And, when, and everything is submitted. Everything about him is submitted to the glory of God. None of this is true about us. And so the thoughts that arise from that life that is fully devoted to God, that understands him, that yields to him in his word, the thoughts that arise out of that life, the fruit that comes out of that life is truth. And we need to hear it and respond to it. So I want you to try, and we need this, I have to be very careful when I say this. You know, when I was, when I was working through my preparation, I thought this, this almost sounds blasphemous to even say this. And, and I don't want to do that. But, but with, with, with a reverence and with an awe, let, let's try to imagine the mind of God together. And let's try to follow his thoughts about himself after him. And let's start with this. God knows God. God comprehends himself perfectly and exhaustively. His, he, he knows himself omnisciently. He's God. He knows himself omnipotently. In other words, all his strength, all his power in knowing himself is poured into knowing himself. From all eternity, his knowledge of himself is always living and active. It's not like on a dusty shelf. He's always thinking about it. He's always thinking about himself. He's always plumbing the depths of his greatness. He's always walking the breadth and the length of his glory. He's always scaling the heights of his glory. He's always being beautiful and beholding his own beauty. Always. That's what it means to be God. Think about the Trinity. I mean, I think, I think apart from the doctrine of the Trinity, this commandment is very difficult to understand. So think about the Trinity, the Trinity because the omniscient and omnipotent love of God for God is the eternal family history of the Trinity. Think about it. From all eternity, the Father, with all that he is, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength, has been loving the Son for all that he is and all that he has. And loving the Spirit with all the, for, for all that He is and all that He has. And the Son and the Spirit each in turn have loved the other two members of the Trinity from all eternity with all that they are for all that the other two members are and have. And that's the family history of the Trinity. And think about it at this level as well. God has not only been fulfilling the greatest commandment, within the Trinity, but also that, in a sense, that second greatest commandment, the Father has been loving his neighbors, the Son and the Spirit, as he loves himself. Friends, these, these greatest commandments that Jesus is talking about are echoes of what it means to be God. And God wants this choice instrument of his design and fashioning, the image bearers of humanity, to resonate with his praise and his excellence in a way that is synchronized to his own being. Can you think, can you imagine any privilege or opportunity or honor that could be bestowed on you as a human being that's greater than that? Which brings us to us and the vanished glory of men. How far we've fallen. Yes, the triune God loves God with all his heart and all his soul and 
all his mind and all his strength, but we do not. When God comes with his gauge, when God comes to our hearts with his gauge and measures our hearts, what does he find there? Oh, he finds love and he finds zeal and he finds fascination and he finds a willingness to sacrifice and he finds a devotion and he finds an exhilaration and he finds a, a passion for beauty. He finds thanksgiving and wonder. He finds awe and he finds trust and treasuring, but not for him. Isn't that true? Let's be honest with ourselves. When God comes with his gauge to our hearts and sees what's there, he does not see that his image bearers are resonating to the music of his own heart. He sees us resonating to the music of pleasure and money and ambition and our own glory. You see, when God comes to our hearts, he doesn't find them nowhere, as in neutral. He finds them elsewhere, as in otherwise committed to things and people besides him. This this was to be our glory as human beings. This was the summit that God had prepared for us to dwell on, to love God with all our heart and all our soul all our mind and all our strength. That was the summit that God had prepared for us to flourish as human beings. To image God by loving God. To image him by loving him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our minds. And therefore, necessarily, because God loves our neighbor, to love him means that we're going to join in and participate in his love for our neighbor. There's no way you can stop it. You can't stop it. Those things are connected. They're not separate commandments in the sense that they're completely separable. That that you will never love your neighbor as yourself unless you first love God. And if you love God, you're going to love your neighbor. But this was to be our glory. This was to be at the heart of what it means to be human. That our lives would be radiant with the love of God. That our lives would be radiant with the love of neighbor. And that, that in those ways, we, our lives would tell the truth about God and display the truth about him. That's why God made us his image bearers. But this glory of our calling has vanished. And the reason it's vanished is because we have striven with all our might to banish it from our lives. You see, the glory has departed. We have made of humanity, you, you know, remember what, uh, what Eli's the daughter-in-law says when the ark is captured by the Philistines in, in 1 Samuel 4, and she has her, she has her son, and she, she calls him Ichabod. For the glory has departed. You see, that's what we've made of humanity through our sin. That's what we've done. We've made ourselves Ichabod. The glory has departed, and that glory has been gone for so long, and we've grown so accustomed to living in the midst of the ruins that sin has wrought upon humanity. And we have lived so long, and we've grown so accustomed to understanding our lives and interpreting all our experience apart from that glory that we were created for, that when somebody now talks to us, whether it's Jesus or some, anybody else, when somebody now talks to us and says, hey, puts our arm around our shoulder and says, do you know why you exist? Do you, know what it, do you know what it means? you know what the absolute key thing is for you to be truly human? Do you know what is the essential, non-negotiable uh, fact and reality of humanity? It is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind. When somebody says that to us, or we read it, it lands on us like alien gobbledygook. 
sounds so weird. I mean, we got to live our lives, right? Then we got practical things. Why aren't you talking to me about practical things? This is the most practical thing in your life. Case in point, consider the lawyer. I know it's hard for you to do that. But I have great sympathy for this guy. Consider the lawyer who approaches Jesus with a question about the great commandment in the law. And you notice how the text emphasizes that he came up with an intention to test him with this question. You notice that? I mean, do you feel the irony in that? Like this is going to be hard? Like this is a debatable question? Like this is, this is hard to figure out what the greatest commandment is? I think there's an irony in the way that Matthew describes this. It's Jesus is not... You know, you know, this guy approaches Jesus like he's got the Ph.D. level complexity question. He's going to give him, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answers it immediately. He says, this is like kindergarten. This is kindergarten simplicity. Here's somebody who's supposed to be an expert in God's law. And he thinks it's debatable what the point of the law is. Notice, think about this commandment. Notice how the, God's prescription in this great and first commandment, as Jesus explains it to us, notice how his prescription, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Notice the three alls, three alls. Notice how that, how that prescription in the commandment is also necessarily carries, carries with it a, 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 a diagnosis of our condition. See, because what the commandment is doing is saying, okay, this part of you, give it to God. This part of you, give it to God. This part of you, give it to God. You see what the commandment is doing? The commandment is calling human beings to reintegrate, in a sense. But, of course, what that implies is that what sin has wrought in the lives of human beings is to disintegrate us, to splinter us, to take what was whole and to fracture it and splinter it. You see, it's a picture. The commandment is kind of the, the positive image of the negative of what sin has accomplished. This is God's vision for what he wants his people to be at the same time that it is his description of what sin has made us to be. Friends, we think that we're whole. But we fool ourselves. We're not. And we dishonor God by saying that we are. You know, we are spiritual Humpty Dumpties. We have had a great fall. And all of our horses, as it were, and all of our men, all of our exertions cannot put us back together again. Do you know this about your personhood? You're scattered, you're broken, and so this is how idolatry thrives. It hedges bets. It gives, it gives a little bit to this false god, and a little bit to that false god, and a little bit to that false god. Idolatry is simply this divided up uh, graphic illustration of what sin has wrought in our hearts, which it has fractured us and splintered our personhood. And now God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is saying, I am here to summon you to wholeness again because the only thing that can pull the fractured, splintered shards of what sin has left of humanity, the only gravity great enough to heal a human being is the gravity of God's glory. Now, either you believe that or you think it's a common. I believe it. I believe it. And Jesus believed it. Jesus lived it. So let me ask a question again. When God comes, when the triune God comes with his gauge to take the measure of the hearts of men, what does he find? He doesn't find them nowhere as in neutral to him, but he finds them elsewhere. In fact, he finds them everywhere else but on him. Oh, we look to 
We look to relationships for a rescue. We look to our careers for a rescue. We look to our kids for a rescue. We look to our, our own piety for a rescue. We look to our money for a rescue and our identity. We look to our achievements for a rescue and our identity. We look to escaping singleness or escaping marriage for the rescue from identity. Our hearts are everywhere else except on where they were made to be, where Jesus has come to bring them again. You see, the true measure of the gravity of our sin is how little gravity God possesses in our eyes. We think that the biggest problem with sin, that the biggest crisis of our sin is our suffering that comes from it. And I do not want to underestimate the reality of the suffering that flows rightfully from our sin. And when I say our suffering, I mean even the prospect of hell. We think that the greatest crisis of our sin is what's going to happen to us. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The greatest crisis of our sin is the offense that it is to the glory of God. So if you think the first way that the greatest uh, crisis of our sin is the suffering that we're going to endure, then the only thing that Jesus is going to rescue you from or that you will think that the gospel brings is is the replacement of pain with pleasure. But in reality, what God has come to do in Jesus Christ is to replace is to replace junk with treasure. God himself. We've made God so small and so peripheral in our thoughts and our affections, we diminish and reduce him in so many ways, we can't count them all. We treat him, we treat him like he's an abstract theory. I used to do this all the time. We debate about God and the idea of God. We treat him like he's just this abstract cloud out there when he, in fact, is the most real and concrete person there is. We treat him like he's a genie in a bottle who's at the disposal of our whims to come in at our beck and call and to rescue us and to grant our wishes. We treat him like he's the monkey on the end of the organ grinder's chain. And when we crank the organ, he hears it and says, oh, I better go get somebody to give me a little goodie in the cup so I can bring it back to the master. We treat him like he's some kind of benevolent playground monitor whose job it is to keep us from getting hurt and who won't blow his whistle very loud because he knows how that grates on our ears. The true measure of the ugliness of our sin is how little beauty God actually possesses in our eyes. We're captivated by so many other things. Love God with all my heart and all my soul all my strength, happily yielding my life to him, all that I am and have as an act of devotion and love, find my true self by losing it for him and in him, that sounds like insanity to me. You know, in case you hadn't noticed it, friends, we inhabit a a world which has worked very hard for a long time to, to scrape and scrub away every trace of God that it can. And we are embedded in a global community now that is discipling us. It's working overtime and has been for millennia to scrub away the traces of God, both from culture and human conscience. That's what's happening in the world because that's what's happening across human history. Now, many of the tools that we use today in in this uh, de-godding a project that men pursue. They're different than they used to be, but the goal is still the same, right? Take back the world for men. And, and we live in the West, and in the West, right, we, we increasingly, our culture is discipling us to believe, and many of us have been deeply shaped by these assumptions. Our culture has taught us to believe things like this, that, you know, that we watch these markers of so-called human progress like technology and science and those things and we, we, we're taught 
And, and so many of the people that we interact with have come to believe that, that these things are, are tools that men are using to liberate themselves and set them free from the, from the myths and the fairy tales and the superstitions that have impeded human flourishing. And of course, it's God who is at the center, who's the archvillain, he's the culprit of culprits who keeps men and women and children down. And he's the one that we have to expunge from the record of our lives and our world in order to be free. With the tragic irony, of course, within the four corners of the Bible, is that when you empty humanity of God, You don't fill it up with something else. You empty humanity of true humanity. Because we are created in the image of God. And every person knows this in the deepest sanctuary of their hearts. You see, the real fairy tale and the real superstition And the real myth is that God is not great. And that superstition and that myth does not liberate people. It enslaves them. Friends, we inhabit spaces in the external world and in our interior lives that have been emptied of God and yet remain filled by him. We inhabit a world that is haunted by God. Haunted by all sorts of things that we can only have through God. And we try to paper over what, where these things came from, like order and coherence. These stubborn categories that we are refusing to give up of good and evil. You know, you, you can play in the classroom. And you can play in a book. And you can be a professor. Or you can sit in your armchair in your living room and say, Oh, things like good and evil, these do not exist. This is just a social construct. Wait till somebody murders your spouse. Or somebody hits you over the head and takes your wallet. Or you turn on the television and you see what's happening in Syria and in then all of a sudden your little armchair theory gets proven to be pretty thin and worthless. You know, on vacation this year, we did something that we have, uh, we, we do when we go to Berkeley. There's this place in Berkeley called Indian Rock. And I don't know how the name has, I was thinking about it this week, first time I ever thought of this, how they keep that name in Berkeley. Not the rock and it's this huge, it's in this residential neighborhood. I mean, it, rock is an understatement. I mean, this thing is a boulder of boulders. And it's just, they couldn't move it. So they just built around it. And somebody chiseled steps into this thing on the side of it. And you can climb the steps and you can go up and sit on Indian rock. And every night at sunset from Indian rock, you look out and you look out over the bay and you see San Francisco and you see the Golden Gate Bridge and you see the sun setting. It is awesome. And so people go up there and they sit on Indian rock. And I was just struck to think, why, why are all these people sitting there? What are they watching? Are they there to, to rubberneck an accident? All these people who, if we took a poll, probably say, hey, there's no objective meaning. There's no God. This is all just one. This is the latest scene in this massive accident that was started with the Big Bang. Is that why people go there? To rubberneck an accident? No way. They go there because the glory and gravity of what only God can do draws them irresistibly. And he sets before them in his kindness the reality of his weightiness and his goodness and his beauty so that at the end of their lives, if they do not repent and turn to him, their mouths will be shut. They will be without excuse. No, the real superstition, the real fairy tale, the real myth is the assertion 
that this world and our lives belong to us and that the triune God is not worth what he calls forth from us, love. That's the real myth. That's the myth, the superstition that enslaves people. Now, if the story ended there, my friends, it would be a tragedy. But I want to remind you of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. God has given us a champion. You see, we've left this work unfinished. But God was unwilling that it would be unfinished. And Paul says something that is so astonishing. He says, near the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God has sent a champion. We did not carry the burden of the greatest commandment. We did not fulfill it. We have not lived lives that told the truth about God. But God sent his son into the world, that there would be one. He would not leave the mission that he had designed for humanity to go unfulfilled. Out of love for his own glory and out of love for his image bearers, he was not willing to leave us exposed to our own folly. He was not willing. This is so amazing. Though we have banished the glory of God from our understanding of ourselves and the world, God was unwilling to remain banished by his image bearers. And he sent his son, incarnate as a man. And the gospel, my friends, is the announcement, the good news, right, that that, the, that God's greatest commandments to men are the measure of Jesus' achievements as a man. Because Jesus has loved God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. And he has loved his neighbors, the whole world, as himself. You know, the lawyer in this passage can't catch Jesus off guard because he borrows a question that Jesus has owned his entire life. He just, Jesus has been thinking about this question. What's the first and greatest commandment? Je- this is his life's work, friends. This is Jesus' life work. What is the great and first commandment? And what does it mean in this part of my life, in this part of my life, in this moment of my life, in this moment of my life? How do I fill my whole human life up with it so full that it will be a never-ending reservoir for the people of God to draw from for all eternity? That was Jesus' life work. This was the question he thought about throughout his whole life. It was the question he answered with his entire life. It was the center of every breath he drew. It was the center of every thought he had. It was the, it was the focus of every beat of his heart, every emotion he ever felt, ever, all of his learning, all of his understanding. It was the center of every affliction he endured, every suffering he endured, at the center of every temptation he resisted. He was bent on answering the question of what it means to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every word he spoke, every relationship, every ability, every capacity, every opportunity in his life from Mary's womb forward. From Mary's womb forward, he consecrated the temple of his flesh and he filled it up with the love of God and he poured out from his life love to God and love to neighbor. And he did that so that he might be fully qualified to save his people from their sins. You know, we so often question whether God loves us. And I have found that thinking about this act of obedience of Jesus Christ has been very helpful to me to remind me of how deeply Jesus loves his people. You know, many of us might say we were not loved even as children in the womb. Many of us might say we were unwanted. 
But you know, Jesus loved you if you're in Christ. Jesus loved you in his infancy. He dedicated his infancy to you and to your eternal welfare. Many of us might say that we were not loved as toddlers or as teenagers or as adults. But in every phase of his life, friends, if you're in Christ, in every phase of his life, Jesus, in all those same phases, isn't it amazing that Jesus went through all those seasons? It's so perfect. You see, the gospel is so perfectly suited to answer for our condition. Only God could have designed this. But in every one of those seasons of his life, Jesus, that we might look back on and say something was missing. Love was missing. Commitment, fidelity, those things were missing. And I'm the worst for it. No, you're not. Because Jesus Christ, traveling through all those same seasons of life, was loving you. Dedicating those seasons of his life to your eternal welfare. Bringing every human capacity into the love of God. Fully harnessing every human ability in the service of fulfilling every human duty before God. Friends, Jesus gave his, his life was a living sacrifice that he gave from love to God. He gave his life from love to God. His life was a living sacrifice of love for neighbor. He gave his life as a living sacrifice for his neighbors, living as a man among men to be their champion before God. Now the saving power of Jesus' death is the fruit and result of the saving power of his life. And I want us to be in awe of the greatness of our Savior. I mean, if, if nothing else is achieved in your life today, but that the magnitude of Jesus' cross has gotten bigger because you see that the magnitude of the life that he offered up on that cross for you was bigger than you previously thought, then, then praise God, that has been a glorious fruit. Do, do not slander Jesus Christ by reducing him to a penalty payer. That dishonors him. Because if that's all he had to be, boom, incarnation happens on the streets of Jerusalem and he walks straight to the cross. No. He had to, he had to live a life of saving significance from the womb forward. Now, there are two very practical implications here. One is love and the other is repentance. You see, Jesus is not... Well, let's, let's talk about love a little bit more. Friends, what ought to happen in our lives as we hear this, as we're embedded by, uh, as this news is embedded in us, is that that reaction, that glory, that beauty of God's heart that sent out the music of the gospel into our world in the person of his son. Friends, you need to stand under that and that needs to call forth love from you and gratitude, devotion to the Lord Jesus. If you hear this and you, and you think, okay, well, Francis, if you're saying that, that, that you know, don't worry, you haven't filled, fulfilled the great commandment, but Jesus has, and don't worry, you haven't fulfilled the second greatest commandment, but Jesus has on your behalf. That if you think that that means that you're gonna, that somebody who believes that is gonna run off and not care about obedience or devotion to God, then you haven't understood it. This will bind your heart ever closer because the gravity of Jesus will be bigger. So more of your life, if you're understanding this, is gonna be brought into a closer and tighter orbit around him. And you'll be more motivated to give your life up to him, not less. But then there's repentance. Because these same achievements of Jesus in his life uh, call us to repentance. And I'm speaking initially here to Christians. Repentance from all false Jesus-defaming trust in our own obedience. You may be spiritually cocky, because you trust in your own morality and piety. And you think you do okay. 
Seeing the achievement of Jesus' life means to bring you low in sackcloth and ashes and wean you, rescue you, amputate you from any confidence in your own obedience as a currency by which you gain God's approval. But you might also be somebody who is guilty of exactly the same sin because you're in such despair as a Christian. And you look at your life and you look at how impoverished what you regard as your obedience is. You profess faith in Christ, you trust in him, but you are perpetually gloomy. You are perpetually discouraged. It is hard to get you to praise him. It, you don't experience peace, and the reason you don't is because you're always looking at yourself. Friends, you need to repent. Take your eyes off yourself. I'm not saying ignore your weaknesses, but always cling to the cross when you're thinking about your weaknesses. It's Jesus Christ's obedience that has opened the door to God for you, not yours. It's Jesus Christ's obedience to God that keeps that door open, not yours. I love the quote from Robert Murray McShane. It has helped me so much. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Smiles of God on you because you're looking at Jesus, the sin bearer God has appointed the one who saves his people from their sins by the power, the saving power of his perfect life. Those smiles aren't on you because you've been obedient in adding something to Jesus' sacrifice as if, as if he lived from Mary's womb all the way through the cross just to be your example or your model, some religious teacher no, he came and lived to be your champion substitute so that there would be a shelter, not of your making, but of Jesus Christ's. That would be wide enough and big enough for all the nations. That would be deep enough for the deepest sinner and high enough to bring us to God. And so if you're a non-Christian, um, friend, there, there are only two possibilities according to God. You're either going to take shelter in the, uh, in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ as your substitute, which is what the gospel's gracious summons to you is today. God is saying, flee from trusting in yourself and flee to Christ and rest in what he has done. Repent of trusting in yourself and turn to Christ. He is a worthy and sufficient substitute to be your eternal shelter. He is the source of eternal uh, salvation. Come to him. Turn from your sins. God says, I will receive all who come to my son. You will either know Jesus and his perfect obedience as your perfect shelter, or you will meet him at the end of your life as the standard by which you are going to be measured by God. His obedience is only going to be your shelter or it's going to be the standard against which God measures you, the gauge that he compares your heart to. And so, friends, God, that day is coming. That day is coming to all of our lives. And while there is still time, while it is still called today, I plead with you to flee from that false shelter and to take shelter in Christ. May you say, right, you know, maybe you know the hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And may it be so that when God comes with his gauge to measure your heart, even this morning, he would find you, not elsewhere, but there, on Christ the solid rock standing for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray now for a gracious upheaval in our lives. 
Because the truth is that even in our worship, we understate you. We understate the gospel. Our clearest understanding, the most uh, scripturally faithful human declaration, understates your goodness and your worthiness of our love. And so we ask that you in the great beauty and gravity of your glory would restore us and remake us according to the image of Christ. Bring redemption and its fruits more abundantly into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.